0: Yeah, I really think this practice of sending off urine eosinophils needs to stop.
1: The trainees do know. And they're like, it's their old school attending who doesn't attend very much. And <laughs> trainees will say, well, we shouldn't be doing that anymore. It's not very useful. And then they get it anyways, and they have to apologize to the nephrologist when we we're like, why did you get that? <laughs>
0: Essentials, a podcast for medical students, advanced practitioners at the University of Colorado and beyond. This is our second podcast on your analysis and we have once again our same star guest Juan Carlos. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself?
2: Yes, thanks everybody for inviting me again. Uh, My name is Juan Carlos Vélez. I'm a nephrologist and, and the department chair of nephrology at Oxford Health and a professor of medicine with the University of Queensland. An auction clinical school and a self-proclaimed piss profit.
1: There you go. Good one. <laughs> you brought that one around this time. Teresa,
3: oh. <laughs> you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm Parisa Moritaji, and I am a new hospitalist at the University of Colorado. I love all things kidney and I'm glad to be here.
0: Sophie.
1: Hi everybody, I'm Sophia Ambrousseau. Sophia Kidney on Twitter. I'm an assistant professor and clinician educator at the Denver VA and University of Colorado.
0: And I am Sarah Young. I joke I'm a nephroscopist because I do predominantly inpatient medicine. So I'm both a hospitalist and a nephrologist. Welcome to our podcast. Last podcast, we discussed urine sediment. And this podcast, we're going to do some clinical cases and discuss how the urinary sediment helps. So with that, let's just jump into case number one.
3: Parisi, you want to You want to read this? Yeah. So we have a 55-year-old male who's admitted to the hospital with five days of nausea and vomiting. His baseline creatinine is 0.8, but on arrival to the ER, his creatinine is up to 1.3. His blood pressure is 90 over 45. His heart rate is 110. He is making some urine and is able to provide a sample. Upon looking at the urine microscopy, it reveals six granular casts on low power field and five renal tubular epithelial cells on high power field. The ER resident asks why you bothered to look at the urine. The patient is clearly dry and needs fluids. So how would you respond?
2: (laughs) I would respond that patient already has some elements that indicate presence of acute tubular injury. So I'll be very careful uh, deciding to administer IV fluids. We don't know if the patient is going to urinate right away or not. It may precipitate fluid overload. But uh, yeah, in this case describes the urine microscopy had six granular casts per low-power field. That is certainly consistent uh, with what Mark Paracella in his paper defined as indicative of a high score consistent with acute tubular injury. I don't think we have to use those paracetal scores clinically. Those were done sort of a, for research purposes. But if you find this number of casts, they certainly suggest presence of ATN.
1: So, you know, I, I, before I go, I do want to, and I always like to say this, is, and this is mainly to house staff, is, is just because someone does have an AKI and we're worried about them not making urine, we do want to make sure that we volume resuscitate them but we want to volume resuscitate them to the quote-unquote euvolemia and not overdo it. And I think that we can feel confident here that probably like the more volume we give, it may not improve the serum creatinine and it may not improve how much urine they make because we feel like probably there are signs of acute tubular Acute tubular necrosis. But I do want to highlight that let's not ignore the fact that we might need to resuscitate somebody with a blood pressure of 90 over 45 and heart rate of 110. Just the main issue is that we cannot expect um urine output to improve dramatically, rather, just blood pressure. And we can expect that we might need to watch the serum creatinine plateau before we can expect it to get better. Um so this is no longer just a prerenal azotemia from volume depletion, it's likely more than
0: that. I was just going to say, that's sort of the point, right? You know, if it's pre-renal azotemia, that you don't have concerns if you volume resuscitate this person, that the patient's not going to urinate. But if you see evidence of ATN, they may still urinate. A lot of ATN does urinate. Sure. And you won't get into trouble. But you are at higher risk of somebody who might be oligoric or aneuric. And so your chances of overshooting are greater.
1: Right. So, so really, I think the lesson there is cautious volume resuscitation, and not over resuscitation. So, just coming back really quickly, what we could expect from a prerenal azotemia would be more likely to see a very bland urinary sediment, so no casts, no cells. We might see some. Excuse me. Let me rephrase that. Um, what we might see um, in prerenal azotemia are some hyaline casts, which are just sort of this, you kind of see this shape of a cast, but there's no cells within there. And what they're composed of is uromodulin, and that's more common because of the sluggish urine flow, Uh, but it's not a tubular injury or necrosis that's being seen there.
2: Yes rhino cells uh, could be uh, seen in the same category of brown granular casts in the sense that they are reflective of acute tubular injury. We don't quite understand what makes the injury reveal only cells or more cells than casts. Both could be present and both have importance. The classic finding is going to be brown granular casts. The tumor cells are found less often, but quite frankly, are found less often because they are more difficult to be caught. You know, you have to, as I said earlier, if you don't have SMN stain, you may miss them and you have to go to 400X power, not just the 100X. So for those reasons, it's probably underreported uh, and not, not because there are no present, it's just because they're more difficult to be
0: found. So Prisa, from the perspective of a hospitalist, how does the urine change how you would resuscitate them?
3: Yeah, I think it's really helpful to get that perspective because I would probably resuscitate until the patient's hemodynamically stable and monitor urine output. I could see easily how they could go from being volume deplete to wet quickly if I were trying to increase their urine output or increase, you know, make their numbers look better. But in this case, it seems like resuscitate them until they're hemodynamically stable and then kind of let the ATN resolve. Yeah, I think what sometimes does
1: happen is you know people say, "Oh, this still seems like it should be prerenal azotemia." I'm going to give him another liter, and then another liter, and then we get like four liters deep, and suddenly the creatinine's not getting better, and probably because it was never prerenal azotemia, and now we're four liters deep, and depending on who the patient is, you know, a heart failure patient, then we could be in in deep trouble. And I think it, that can happen, and we can get to that setting really quickly sometimes.
0: Okay, well, that was good. Let's move on to case number two. So a 35-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis is admitted to the hospital with epigastric pain. She takes NSAIDs regularly to manage her arthritic pain, alternates between ibuprofen and Celebrex. She was told celibrex is safer. Her baseline creatinine is 1.1. But on admission, her creatinine is 3 milligrams per deciliter. Her blood pressure is 140 over 80, heart rate of 90. You examine the urine and see occasional white blood cells, red blood cells, or renal tubular epithelial cell. The resident, a future nephrologist, says she sent off EOS and the eosinophilia was less than 1%. So she does not think this is AIN. Plus, she adds, there were renal tubular epithelial cells on the UAA, so this is probably ATN. Juan Carlos, you want to comment on this future nephrologist assessment (laughs) of the situation?
2: Yes, absolutely. So yeah, interesting case. This patient is a young woman with uh, connective tissue disease that was exposed to a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent. We know NSAIDs can cause all kinds of problems in the kidneys. It can cause a vasomotor hemodynamic type of acute kidney injury, essentially constricting the afferent arteriole. That's the most common type. The most common type of enzyme use AKI is just a hemodynamic AKI. Some patients can get other things such as minimal change disease, but some patients develop an allergic reaction and can present with acute interstitial nephritis. In this particular case, the urine is helpful because it's showing presence of white blood cells, red blood cells. so white blood and red cells, you know, when we think about the hemodynamic type of AKI from NSAIDs, we shouldn't be seeing those elements there. This is a sort of a dirty urine for that. So I'm already thinking this is some sort of parenchymal type of injury, which could be glomerular or interstitial. But knowing that NSAIDs are a cause of AIN, I'm already leaning towards an acute interstitial nephritis. Eosinophiluria being less than 1%, Again, unfortunately, eosinophils in urine are a very, very lousy test. Should be abandoned, really, from practice. You're talking about sensitivities in the the 60% range, uh, or maybe even worse. So that should not be uh, taken in consideration. White cells in the urine, on the other hand, are highly indicative if you have the right pretest probability or clinical suspicion. And finally, the case also mentions renal tubular cells. Well, I remembered it. Interstitial nephritis, it is also called acute tubular interstitial nephritis. So having some tubular cells in the urine doesn't negate the presence of AIN. It could be part of the picture. So certainly I'm not bothered by that at all. And I would be suspicious of that AIN in this case.
0: Yeah, I really think this practice of sending off your ESNFLs needs to stop, but it, it doesn't. <laughs> it happens. At-
1: you know, it's funny because I feel like the trainees do know. And they're like, oh, no, no, it's this one attending. And it's their old school attending who doesn't attend very much. And <laughs> not to call them out. But I mean, this is like what I hear time and time again. Parisa probably has an attending that she has in mind right now that makes her get or made her get before she came in attending urine eos every time and then you know the the trainees will say well don't they say that we shouldn't be doing that anymore it's not very useful and then they get it anyways and they have to apologize to the nephrologist when we're like why
0: did you get that oh it's not a nephrology attending that's telling them that no
1: no no it's a a medicine (laughs) attending
0: i hope i mean i i I haven't yet met a nephrology
1: attending who has done that recently (laughs) anyways Is it still my turn to talk or are you going to say something, Sarah?
0: No, it's your turn to talk. It's always your turn, Sophie.
1: (laughs) Well, what I wanted to just bring up was that the diagnosis of AIN is truly challenging because it really can look like anything. But what's really funny is that we're taught the AIN triad, right? That's what we're taught. It's like in the boards, at least it is um, in medicine. And it's a triad of rash, fever, and eosinophilia, but that's actually incredibly rare, and we don't really see people present with that too often. But we do uh, find AIN on about 13 to 27% of kidney biopsies in AKI. We actually might be missing quite a few of them because a lot of our AKIs are not biopsied, and probably the AINs that we see, sometimes we stop the offending agent, we seem to get away with us calling it something else. But if we are suspicious, we should biopsy. And I do want to just highlight that urine eosinophils, we bring this up, it's incredibly nonspecific. It can be found in AIN, ATN, and GNs. And it's it's just something that if you see it, I mean, I've heard something about eosinophils serum, like elevated eosinophils in the blood. But even then, I don't put much stock into that. But if we see it, I think that we should suspect that perhaps there's something active going on. And don't ignore it, but I don't think we should be collecting that specifically to put us in one direction or another.
0: You know, when we recorded this podcast last time, Juan Carlos said that he, if I remember this wrong, Juan Carlos, correct me. I remember you saying that you treat a lot of AIN empirically and don't necessarily biopsy these people. And I, that's interesting because I do not treat empirically for AIN. I biopsy people if I have a suspicion for AIN. And it's not that I'm afraid of steroids. I take care of lupus patients. I give steroids like it's, you know, toothpaste. But, yeah, it's just interesting that yeah. you that that's a, a big difference in practice.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I, I don't want to convey a message that I am reluctant to biopsy or I prefer not to biopsy these patients. What happens is that there are often patients very unstable and not in a situation where a kidney biopsy can be safely done. Patients in the ICU. So
0: like a MICU patient. Yeah, a patient yeah.
2: in the ICU or a patient with, uh, you know, severe thrombocytopenia. Uh, there, are, there are some factors that, that just make it, the, the biopsy more difficult. And uh, sometimes discontinuation of a medication is a Reasonable step, and sometimes I think, well, you know, let's just stop the drug, and if we don't see an improvement, we'll biopsy. And then two days later, the creatine went from five to three point eight. I'm like, all right, let's just keep waiting. And then the next day is three point one. So at that point, it becomes more difficult to go for a biopsy.
0: Yeah, the challenge is also which drug is the offending agent, especially in these MICU patients who are on like twenty drugs. But I, I find this very challenging. I continue to think that we at the university, at least, are under-diagnosing AIN a lot. So I worry that we're not biopsying enough people who are suspicious of it. In. All right, on to our last case. A 50-year-old construction worker is referred to you for hematuria, proteinuria, and a creatinine of 1.2. His PCP has noticed hematuria for the past six months. He has fatigue, fever, malaise. He also has He also has proteinuria. His urine shows dysmorphic RBCs, white blood cells, and red blood cells casts. His ANCA comes back positive, and a kidney biopsy confirms a positive UGN. Sophie, what are your thoughts about this case?
1: So this is a classic finding um, in the urine for a patient who has got nephritic syndrome, which includes dysmorphic RBCs, but but more specifically acanthocytes, red blood cell casts, and proteinuria. What the urine doesn't tell us is that what his cause of um, nephritic syndrome is, but a biopsy um, with ANCA-positive serologies will give us a diagnosis of a microscopic polyangiitis.
0: So the second part of this case is that you treat the patient with steroids and Rituxan, and he has an excellent response with resolution of his proteinuria and his creatinine improves to 0.7 milligrams per deciliter at six months. You see him one year later, on presentation, and you find that his urine, once again, has dysmorphic red blood cells. How does this help you, Juan Carlos?
2: Yeah, thank you. Interesting case. appears that this patient responded well to the treatment and now accounts for follow-up, and presence of dysmorphic red blood cells in the urine should raise concern for a relapse. This entity of ANCA-related vasculitis, as you know, they can relapse, and red blood cells in the urine if, if are dysmorphic, particularly they are acanthocytes, should raise a concern for a possibility that this GN may be coming back. Sometimes the kidney function still preserved. Creatinine, you know, we don't think about vasculitis when the creatinine is 0.8. Typically, they present with AKI, but we've actually identified cases in clinic that come for follow-up and they get re-biopsy and you can see some early crescents already being present. So don't underestimate that. So yeah, that would be that would be my my concern in this case and definitely would like to continue evaluating this patient more thoroughly.
1: So if and I if I can just clarify, if this patient had I mean if they clear so should we expect a patient who had an vasculitis to have complete resolution of RBCs and acanthocytes in the urine post-treatment?
0: Yeah. And they have a worse prognosis if they don't. Yeah,
2: it's, a, it's a, t- a tough question, Sophie. I would say that, you know, we try to kind of look at the urine systematically on these patients to kind of get an idea of what their baseline status is post-induction therapy. So this has been looked in lupus nephritis more formally by the Ohio State University group where they found patients that actually t- the urine turned bland and then subsequently they found some casts and they ended up having a relapse later on. This in an vasculitis, hasn't been done as systematically, but I would say that some patients may turn the sediment bland, but I don't think it's homogeneous across the board. There are going to be some patients that probably don't go fully quiescent, and you may see some dysmorphic red blood cells floating around, so that kind becomes their baseline in a way. We see that very often with IgA nephropathy, where you, you treat them and you put them under control, but the red cells are always trickling in there. So, yeah, you kind of have to look at the whole context. I'm not trying to say everybody with this nervous cells is having a relapse. It comes down to looking at what has been the pattern. If you see a spike, then it clearly suggests a potential relapse.
1: Yeah, I think that I just want to bring this around from a primary care perspective and somebody who's following someone who's been treated for ANCA vasculitis, you know, and if they're trying to surveil if, if this patient You know, do we say, okay, this patient's had, you know, chronic stable hematuria with acanthocytes and a stable creatinine, then they just surveil that and they tolerate it. But if it's a patient that has since cleared, and then they've redeveloped acanthocytes, even though their serum creatinine is stable, then that's a, a good prompt for, you know, getting nephrologists involved, or if it's a nephrologist to actually biopsy. Does that sound appropriate?
0: Yeah, I think, well, I don't know if I would re-biopsy the patient. That'd be an interesting discussion for us to have. But, you know, the, the duration of treatment for this is controversial if you're treating with rituxan and steroids. And whether you treat preemptively or whether you treat, some people treat preemptively, which is they give it every six months for some designated period of time, 36 months. And some people wait and follow their antibodies and their urine and only redose them if there's evidence of activity. So I've always been taught that if someone goes negative and becomes positive in an anchovasculitis, that that's really suggested that they're gonna flare in the next six months. The lupus data in Juan Carlos, there might be something that I'm not familiar with, but the best prognostic data for lupus has never been hematuria. And I think the Euro lupus study showed, their follow-up showed that hematuria was not a very good predictor of long-term outcomes. Um, the best predictor was protonuria. So I th- think that's the difference between like ANCA and lupus is that there's been this association between becoming hematuria negative and then becoming positive, being a predictor of what happened.
2: No, no, I, I agree, Sarah. I, I, what I mentioned, the study from Ohio State uh, reported cellular casts, not just hematuria.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah.
2: Correct.
1: Yeah, I I just wanted to try and bring it back around. Um, you know, what goes, this is beyond the scope, but I'm just going to bring it up. What always, I mean, to me, it's all glomerular injury and it's all inflammatory glomerular injury. And so it's hard for me to piece together why, um, in one, it's less prognostic versus another, particularly because I feel like ANCA seems to be a much more, typically a much more aggressive inflammatory process. So one would stand to think that, if there's long on you know ongoing long standing glomerular glomerular injury, the hematuria could persist no matter what, unless globally sclerosed.
0: I can pull the studies to show it to you, but it's actually resolution and then recurrence of it. That's problematic. Right?
2: Yeah. I mean this is a very very high level discussion of of uh, different, you know, features of, of glomerular
0: <laughs> Yes.
2: Now, what I was going to say is that it's interesting because ANCAP vasculitis, ANCAP-related posyumeglomerular nephritis, and IgA nephropathy are notorious for being the two that are more likely to give you a cancel size in the urine compared to lupus nephritis and also the red cell cast and everything. So, although we lumped in a sort of a nephritic basket Interestingly enough, the features in the urine tend to be a little bit different. So I'm not entirely surprised how hematuria could be a better or worse prognostic marker among those diseases. I'd like to mention something that it's uh, important for trainees and residents. If you are a student taking board or a test, and they give you a patient who takes a drug, and they give you a, a white blood cell cast, please choose the answer of interstitial nephritis. Because that's what they're trying to tell you. <laughs> now, let me tell you what my real clinical practice is. My real clinical practice is, is that white blood cell casts are not common in interstitial nephritis. I would tell you that if I, we do microscopy in our center daily, uh, many times a day, we've been doing this for many, many years, three to four Cases of out of five with white blood cell cast are in the context of an acute GN. So white blood cell cast, if you're suspecting a GN, don't get puzzled. Don't think AIN. No, it's actually more likely to be that you are on target, that it is a GN. Somehow the books are written in uh, historically in a different way. But Parisa, you know, the hospital medicine world, this is an important Concept again for the board for the tests <laughs> it's still white blood cell cast, but uh, not in real practice. And we have a, a work that is currently uh, in a manuscript form we're drafting, and hopefully, we'll get to share with the literature later this year. But if you actually look at the published literature already carefully, you will see those reports where white blood cell casts are actually more common in GNs.
0: Great, that's helpful. All right. Well, I think this wraps up our second podcast on your analysis with kidney essentials. Technically, so... it's our third. <laughs> 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 thank you, Juan Carlos, for joining us and providing your expertise. I really, we can't thank you enough. And I know it was pretty painful to schedule this. So thank you. Thank you. And Prisa and Sophie, you want to take us out with our learning objectives?
3: Yes. So our your... Ne- <laughs> Hold on. Yes. Are so, urine objectives? <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was time for me to go to bed. Um, so our learning objectives are urine microscopy and ATN versus prerenal AKI. Specifically learning that pre, for prerenal AKI, we can see bland hyaline casts. For ATN, we'll see renal tubular epithelial cells, as well as coarse granular, what we know as muddy brown casts.
1: Yeah, and urine microscopy and AIN, you can pretty much get anything. White blood cells, white blood cell casts, renal tubular epithelial cells, renal tubule epithelial cell casts, RBCs, RBC casts, yada, yada, yada. You can see a lot of it, and vice versa. Like in uh, ATN and GNs, you can see uh, urine eosinophils. And then urine microscopy and nephritic syndrome. We're going to bring this back around after our last one. We can see dysmorphic RBCs, but more specifically, acanthocytes. You can also see white blood cells, white blood cell casts, red blood cell casts, and like we said, dysmorphic RBCs, like acanthocytes.
0: Okay, well, thank you to everyone for joining us. Thanks, Sophie, for editing. Josh Strong for graphics. And the University of Colorado Division of Nephrology for giving at least me a job. I think Sophie's technically fired right. for it. I am
1: paid by the <laughs> VA, but my promotion still goes through the university. So,
0: <laughs> both of them. All right. Thanks, you guys.
2: Thank you, everybody.